0: A quick programming note, this episode will sound a little bit different because we're testing out a new recording setup and haven't quite worked out all the kinks yet. This is They Create Worlds, episode 86. It's me, Mario! Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. hello. We are going to tell you once more the story of Nintendo. But instead of the whole story, or everything about Nintendo, we're going to focus on everyone's favorite plumber,
1: or carpenter,
0: or that really convoluted history, if you really look at it.
1: That's right. We are, of course... Talking about the singular video game character, Mario, a character who I think it's fair to say is part of many of its most important and best-selling games, helped put Nintendo on the map, and of course, made a household name of its creator or his creator, Shigeru Miyamoto.
0: So the real question is, where does Mario start off? Was it in Donkey Kong?
1: Was it somewhere before? Oh, no, it, it was Donkey Kong. So uh, today we're going to just take a look at kind of the early days of Mario, right up probably until about the time that he went three-dimensional. We're not going to talk about some of the millions of Mario games that have come out since on various handheld systems and on the Wii and on the Wii U and on the Switch and all of that good stuff. But kind of get Mario from his beginnings up to turning 3D and setting him on the path that he still largely follows today. And that path does start with Donkey Kong. Now, this is, of course, a story that in large part has been told before. We've told portions of the story in some of our other Nintendo episodes, and portions of the story that we're about to tell have been told and retold and retold again, going all the way back to the 1980s. But we do hope that we can bring a few newer sources together, kind of fill in a few things around the edges, and and create some kind of coherent whole out of this. So. We'll see how that works out. As I think most of our listeners are probably aware, Mario was a creation born out of necessity during the creation of Miyamoto's first game. There are some legends that have sprung up around it, some of which we addressed previously in our Gunpei Yokoi episode, but we'll go back through some of that again. Basically, what happened is Nintendo had gotten into the arcade video game industry in the mid-1970s. They had released a few games here and there, clones of this, copies of that. They had some games that sold a few units. They never really had anything that did all of that well, however. By the time you get to 1980, they really haven't had a success in the arcade. I mean, they're they're there, but they're not significant in any way. No one's ever going to confuse them for Sega or Namco or any of those great arcade companies. But in 1980, Hiroshi Amuchi, the third president of Nintendo, the longtime president of the company that brought it into the video game era and guided it through all of the early video game era, decided it was time to make a go of it in the United States. And he established a North American subsidiary in New York City, in the New York City area, called Nintendo of America. And he placed his son-in-law... An engineer by training named Minoru Arakawa in charge of that subsidiary. They made some contacts, they were bringing some games in, but again, they weren't having very much success. And then they got absolutely burned when they created a new shooting game called Radar Scope that they thought would finally be the game that would allow them to crack the North American marketplace. It was a Space Invaders-style game, but it had a slightly different kind of a three-quarters graphical perspective, we'll put it in the show notes, of course, that gave it a slightly pseudo-3D look to it. So that was kind of the twist that set it apart from Space Invaders or a Galaxian, which had also come out at that point. And it tested pretty well, and they thought that this was the game that was going to finally be their big breakthrough. So Minoru Arakawa ordered 3,000 units Of this game, which really was a modest order for that time period, if you think about it, because we're now in the post Space Invaders period where you have lots of games that are starting to do 10,000 units, 20,000 units. You even have a small number of games doing 40,000, 50,000. So, in that context, 3,000 was not a particularly large order for the North American marketplace, but it was definitely a larger order. Than Nintendo had tried to do before. The problem was, Nintendo of America was only a sales office and a distributor of the games. They did not manufacture there. So anything that they were going to sell had to come from Japan. And it had to come from Japan all the way to New York City, all the way across the 3,000 miles of the United States that are on the exact opposite side of the country from Japan. It adds weeks to the shipping time, or at least days. So by the time the games arrived, the market just wasn't there anymore. It tested okay, but by the time they could release it in quantity, it just died. This was a problem for Nintendo. Nintendo had 2,000 cabinets of Radar Scope now that they could not sell. They moved a thousand units, which five or six years ago would have been pretty good. But in a post-Space Invaders world, that was just terrible. And they had 2000 unsold units. So they needed a new game quickly, a new board that they could put in the existing cabinet. This is before kits that we talked about were popular. But in this case, they were going to essentially kit out their own game out of desperation. And they needed something new to take its place. The lore, which goes back to David Chef's book, Game Over, which in many ways is a very good book, but it also gets some things wrong. And unfortunately, since it was kind of the definitive look at Nintendo for a long time, a lot of the stories in that book became kind of generally, commonly accepted knowledge, even though they weren't quite accurate. The lore is that at this point, Hiroshi Yamauchi turned to his Young hire Shigeru Miyamoto and basically said, you, sir, must save our company. It is all up to you to come up with a game. Everyone is busy. All the regular designers are busy on their own projects. So you and you alone are tasked with saving us all. Well, that's a great story, but that's not quite true. Uh, We have more modern sources now, more modern interviews. And... It was actually a company wide effort because this is important. I mean, if and if you think about it logically, so what if people were working on other projects? Your North American subsidiary is about to fail spectacularly, and Yamauchi already realized as good as it was to try to make it in Japan, the real money was also getting involved in the United States. So if your North American subsidiary is about to fail and you need a game right now, no, you're not just pulling some random planner out of your employee pool, who has literally never designed a game before, and say, now you are the savior of the company. No, it was all hands on deck. Everybody was asked to submit game designs, and everybody did submit game designs, but Miyamoto was included in that. At this point, uh, and we talked about this a little bit in the Yokoi episode as well, Shigeru Miyamoto really should not have been working at Nintendo. And this is no insult on Miyamoto-san, obviously, because he's such a brilliant guy, but he was hired in 1977, basically as a favor to his father, who was an acquaintance of some level with the president, Yamauchi. I don't think they were bosom buddies or anything, but they knew each other. Miyamoto had graduated from industrial design school or from design school. He was planning to be a designer of products. And he was kind of aimless, and his father was very worried about him and was very worried that he wasn't going to end up getting a job and was just going to be a layabout. So he arranged this interview with Hiroshi Yamauchi because he knew him. Miyamoto brought some designs with him that he had done, uh, particularly some hangers, some wooden children's hangers that were shaped like animals and didn't have sharp edges like a standard wire hanger would. And I think he brought some sketches of a couple of other things. But this is a period of time when Nintendo was kind of getting out of that kind of product. I mean, Nintendo might have done something like that in the 60s, but they were transitioning out of other children's products and other toys and really focusing on this whole video game thing. So there really wasn't a place for that. And they didn't really need an industrial designer or a graphic designer at that time. But whether Yamauchi just wanted to do a favor for his friend or his acquaintance, or if he just saw some creative spark in Miyamoto, which is also possible because there's no doubting that Yamauchi had a great knack for sensing talent and sensing trends and sensing what may be useful to him for the profit of his company. One way or the other, he decided to hire him and put him in the planning department, He designed some casing for some of the dedicated consoles. He did cabinet art for some of the early arcade games. I think he even did some pixel art in one of their arcade games. Uh, But he wasn't a game designer. But now, with all hands on deck, he was one of these people that were asked to submit things. And he actually submitted multiple designs. In in one interview in the Awada Ask series, he said that he submitted about five designs. So it wasn't even the Donkey Kong or what became Donkey Kong was the only thing he came up with. But it was it was one of several ideas. But at that time, uh, as we did discuss in the Yokoi episode, it was not Donkey Kong. It was not an original game. Nintendo had a license with King Features to make Popeye products. They made Popeye playing cards, because you may recall Nintendo started as a playing card company, and they were still making playing cards in this period, even if it was no longer their primary business. And they did make a game and watch game of Popeye. Uh, I can't remember the exact timing on that as compared to Donkey Kong, whether it was before or after. But I think at this time, they were already at least conceptualizing a game and watch game. So he decided to do a a Popeye game and submit an idea for a Popeye game. In this period of time, Pac-Man, of course, had hit and was very popular. And Pac Man actually had an element to it, which was specifically taken from Popeye. The whole power pill thing, where you eat the pill and you can go after the ghosts. Tori Watani took that from Popeye, the idea of Popeye eating spinach and then suddenly being able to turn around and, you know, sock Bluto in the mouth. That was his inspiration for the idea of doing this power pill. So you already kind of had this idea in Pac Man, and he was kind of coming up with this same idea because as the game was originally conceived, it was more of a maze game. Now, it was not a top-down maze game like Pac-Man. It was not a Pac-Man clone. I want to be clear on that. But what he kind of saw is there was a Popeye cartoon, and we talked about this in the Yokoi episode, uh, that took place on a construction site with girders moving around everywhere, and Pluto's got olive oil on the construction site, and Popeye's trying to get up there and, and save her and everything. So Yokoi, who was mentoring Miyamoto on this project, and Miyamoto decided that they would do a riff on that particular Popeye cartoon and set it in a construction zone. The conception they had was that it would be a side-view kind of game. So just like the final game, it was a side-view-oriented game. But it was more like the other early platform games like Space Panic, where you're moving up and down ladders and you're avoiding barrels. The idea that he had, and he says this in the Iwata S interview, is that he felt, and this this shows that from the very beginning, Miyamoto had a very good design sensibility. Miyamoto felt that the best games, at least in an arcade setting where you're trying to get people's quarters... The best games are the games where you feel that the activities that you have to do are simple so that when you die, you don't blame poor game design or you don't blame overly difficult game design and think to yourself, well, this is easy. I can do better than that. Let me put another quarter in and show that you're better than that. And so Miyamoto decided that the best kind of way to do that is take two activities that individually are very simple, and then combine both of them so that the combination of the two things is much more difficult. So he decided that you would be climbing ladders. That's kind of the maze element. You have all of these girders around, and then there are ladders that you have to climb up and down and around to navigate through. And, you know, climbing ladders is simple. Then there's barrels you have to avoid. And avoiding barrels all on its own is simple. But when you have to avoid the barrels while also climbing the ladders and also, in addition to that, making sure you're taking the most efficient route up the ladders, that's when it becomes hard. But because those individual activities are theoretically easy, the player is tricked into thinking it's not as hard as it really is, and he doesn't feel cheated when he dies and he puts another quarter or another 100 yen piece in that machine. That kind of makes sense, right?
0: Right. They blame themselves instead of blaming the game design. Oh, I should have pushed jump sooner. Oh, I should have gone up here, waited for that bill to come by, dropped back down, and then
1: everything's good. Exactly, except for one thing. Right now there's no jumping. Wait. No jump. I w I wanna jump. It's jump man. Everybody wants to jump. Well, he's not jump man either. Oh. Not jump man either. In fact, right now he's still Popeye. But of course, and this is a story that's been told many times, for whatever reason, they were not able to use Popeye. Miyamoto has said in interviews he does not remember the reason why. And of course, Gunpei Yokoi is dead. So whether he remembered or not would be immaterial. But for some reason, they were not able to use Popeye. Logically speaking, doing an arcade game was probably a different set of rights. It was a new negotiation. And my guess is that negotiations would have just dragged on too long to get that license when they needed a game immediately. Because as you're probably aware, Nintendo does, in fact, release a Popeye game the very next year, which is designed by Miyamoto, a Popeye arcade game. But my guess is that since they needed a replacement for Radoscope immediately, they could not wait for that deal to be done. So Popeye was off the table. So at this point, Miyamoto has to design his own original characters. The archetypes are already in place. He needs the, the scrappy everyman hero, the damsel in distress, and he needs the big brutish brute that has taken the damsel in distress. He has never really talked very much about uh, Donkey Kong uh, himself, the ape and, and Pauline, and where that came from. Certainly, it must have come in part from King Kong. They're going to use the construction zone site That's already in place. And this idea of being at the top of a building is very King Kong-ish. Obviously, that was the Empire State Building, not something under construction, but you can kind of draw the same idea. But Mario, of course, they've gone into a lot more detail on. We've talked about this before, and other people have talked about this before. Mario as a character is born entirely from the limitations of the hardware that Miyamoto had to work with. The sprite for the Mario character could only be 16 by 16 pixels. 16 pixels high, 16 pixels wide. These limitations were a large part of the reason that before this time period, when sometimes even the sprites were even more primitive, you did not see very many humans depicted, and when you did, they did not tend to be depicted very well. Most of the earlier games in the 1970s were Western games as in made in the West, not as in cowboy games. In the West, there's always been more of a focus on realistic proportions. So if you can only have a figure that is 16 pixels high, or maybe even fewer pixels than that, and you're also trying to keep that person realistically proportioned, you end up with essentially a stick figure, with a real tiny head and a long, narrow body, because Your sprite's so small that since your head's smaller than your body, the the proportions just work that way. Well, the Japanese didn't feel that same limitation. And I think a lot of that comes out of the visual culture that was already present and the anime and manga tradition that was already present. Deformed characters, non-proportional characters, were already a part of Japanese artistic tradition and a part of Japanese popular culture. And Miyamoto himself was a big manga enthusiast. He had been part of his manga club in high school, and he could draw. He was never going to be a master artist, but he could draw, and he could draw that manga style. So it was very obvious to him in a way that it wasn't for a lot of Western developers that if he's going to create this character, basically the body and the head roughly half the height of that total sprite. Obviously, his head is way out of proportion to the body, but if you didn't do that, you wouldn't have a character just with the technology available at the time. Well, you're still dealing with a small number of pixels, so you need to define this character with as few features as possible. So if you do a mouth, you have to have an upper lip, you have to have a lower lip, you have to have some teeth in there. Suddenly, you've got a lot of real estate being taken up by the mouth. If you draw a prominent nose instead and stick a little mustache underneath it, you have defined a mouth area on a character using far less real estate so you get the big nose and the mustache. He's got that mustache going. He's happy. Exactly. Again, with hair, you need a lot of pixels to define a hairstyle. And plus, if you have hair and you're trying to be anything approaching realistic, you need to have at least a little bit of animation with the hair because Mario can fall from higher platforms to lower platforms. You want to express that graphically. You know, you need his hair to, like, shoot up as he's falling or something, you know, as part of your animation. So we give him a hat. Exactly. So we give him a hat. Then the other aspect of the character's design goes back to a new gameplay feature that came in partway through. Because as I said a moment ago, when this first started, there was no jumping. There had never been really a game with jumping. I think, I can't know for certain, Nintendo people have never really spoken much about their influences from other video games, which can sometimes be something of a taboo subject. It's kind of the idea that you're not supposed to steal from other people, but everybody does, but you don't talk about it, kind of saving face Japanese thing. So while Miyamoto has been very open about what he has taken from other media, movies, manga, anime, etc., he doesn't really talk about influences in terms of other games. But it's pretty clear that in addition to the kind of maze structure of Pac-Man, Uh, There was a platform game called Space Panic that came out the year before, which had you moving between platforms at different levels using ladders. No jumping again. It's just moving around using ladders. And there was also a game that came out the year before called Crazy Climber that had a person ascending a building like a skyscraper or a large apartment building and having to avoid obstacles as he goes up. And it's pretty clear that both of those games had to have some kind of influence on what was going on with Donkey Kong. Uh, the ladders, uh, moving up and down ladders, come straight out of Space Panic. But he wanted a game that scrolled progressively up a structure. And I figure that that must have come from Crazy Climber. Now, in the end, his Programmers said that with the hardware they were using, it would be impossible to do the scrolling. So instead of having a continuously scrolling stage, they split the action into the four screens that make up the four levels of Donkey Kong. But he had hoped originally that it would scroll. Remember also that they were constrained by the cabinet and the wiring harnesses and everything that were already supposed to be a part of that Radar Scope game. So they were left with a control scheme that was going to have to be a joystick and a button. So that's what radar scope used. So with moving up and down ladders, they were using the joystick. They didn't have any gameplay elements that used the button. At the same time, they realized once they started implementing this gameplay that it was actually harder than Miyamoto thought it was going to be. Avoiding barrels and navigating ladders trying to make that work ended up just being way too punishingly difficult. So they decided to kill two birds with one stone. And it it just came down to simply Miyamoto was thinking, well, what would I do if a barrel was hurtling straight at me? And, you know, there, there's no way to go. I can't just step aside or something. What would I do? I would jump. So they decided that that button, that action button, would be a jump button and that Mario would have the ability to jump over barrels. Though, of course, at the time, he was not called Mario, and he wasn't actually even called Jumpman. Miyamoto gave him the very generic nickname Mr. Video. Mr. Video? Really? Yeah, he thought he had a pretty good-looking character, and he decided that he would probably use him, or attempt to use him, in every game that he made going forward. And so he gave him this name of Mr. Video, which kind of implied that, This is a video game character that is going to transcend games, transcend genres, and just keep appearing and appearing and appearing. So Mr. Video was given the ability to jump. Because he was given the ability to jump, they needed an animation that would convey very easily to the player that this jump action was happening. And he decided that the best way to do that was to do something with the arms, with the arms moving. And so if you're going to have the arms moving, you want the arms to be a different color than the rest of the body. Because, again, you're working with such a small sprite that if you don't have a color contrast, it's just not going to come through very well. So he was thinking to himself, well, realistically speaking, what kind of costume, what kind of clothing would a person be wearing that their arms are a different color than the rest of their body? Overalls. Exactly. Overalls with a shirt underneath. So that's how you get the overalls. And so Mr. Video is defined by his hat, his mustache, his large nose, and his overalls, which were all required to make the sprite move and animate and be distinguished properly by the player. And then, of course, because it's a construction zone, he's a carpenter. The profession comes naturally out of the fact that he's already wearing some kind of workman-like clothing with the cap and the overalls. And then he's on a construction site. And so it just makes sense that he would be a carpenter. So now we have Mr. Video, the carpenter, saving his girlfriend from the giant gorilla, which, as we said before, was named Donkey Kong because Kong was slang for a gorilla in Japan coming from King Kong. And then he looked up an English word for stubborn in some kind of very poor dictionary and got the word donkey back because, of course, it needed an English name because it was going to be an English game. So the ape becomes Donkey Kong. We have Mr. Video and the game is sent over to North America in, in the state that we know it today with the barrels and the jumping and the hammer and and then this later on, the cement factory and all of these other stages. Well, the guys at Nintendo of America think that they're really in it now because they've got the strange thing called Donkey Kong. And what now? We're doomed. <laughs> but uh you know, they take it out of the, the boxes. They're in Seattle now. Uh the radar scope debacle is what caused Nintendo to move to Seattle because that extra three weeks of shipping time was a big part of the reason that they missed the market with Radar Scope. They needed to cut down on the shipping time from Japan, and so moving to the West Coast was the logical way to do that. So now we're in Redmond, and the game comes in, and they're like, oh my gosh, but then they start playing it, and they're like, okay, well, actually, this is kind of a fun game. Now, they need to name the character. Mr. Video is kind of just Miyamoto's name. He's never called Mr. Video in any Japanese literature on the game. That's just something that Miyamoto has kind of named him himself. At first, he just has the very generic kind of name, Jumpman, because he's a man and he jumps. But before they actually release the game, they come up with a real name. And as most people know, that name is Mario because of Nintendo of America's landlord in Seattle, Mario Sigali. Their landlord of their property happened to be named Mario, and that's where they got the name. Uh, David Sheff in Game Over tells a overly dramatic rendering of this that is certainly not true, where they're like all sitting around thinking, oh, what are we going to name him? What are we going to do? And then Mario Segali bursts into the room and demands their rent because they're late on their rent. And they're like, Mario, ha ha, we'll show him. Certainly it didn't happen like that. But it is very true that they did name the character Mario after their landlord, Mario Segali. Again, because of misinformation that's gone on through the, through the years, some people think that he was only named Jumpman in Donkey Kong, that the name Mario did not come until the follow-up game Donkey Kong Jr. That's not true. The name Jumpman appears on the arcade cabinet. The game has instructions. Early arcade video games would have instructions right on the cabinet. And on the cabinet, in the instructions, he's called Jumpman. But in the flyer for the game, in the advertising for the game, he is called Mario. So clearly they didn't have the Mario name from the very beginning with the game. They had it before the game released. He, he was always Mario in the United States. He was never just Jumpman. So that's, that's one of those things just to point out. So Donkey Kong hits. Uh, it's a pretty big hit. Actually, they kind of end up overselling it because they sell a lot of units and then the game kind of goes colder faster than people thought it would. So it's not quite as big a hit as people remember, because even though it sold a lot of units, it kind of faded quickly. But it was still a hit. It was still it saved Nintendo of America. It put Nintendo on the map globally. And of course, it gave us this character of Mario. Now. Clearly, Mario is not a completely defined character yet at this point. I mean, he's a carpenter for one thing, <laughs> which we know is not anything about him going forward. And at this time, he's just kind of character I plan to use in a bunch of games. As we know, very famously in Donkey Kong Jr, he's the villain, because Donkey Kong Jr. is kind of revenge of Mario thing, where now that Mario's rescued his girlfriend, he's imprisoned Donkey Kong, and now Donkey Kong's son has to (laughs) rescue him. So the character really gets defined as we think of him today and his world gets defined as we think of him today in the game Mario Brothers. Not Super Mario Brothers. Mario Brothers. The one with just the jumping and collect five coins before the other guy. Also known as that strange mini game in Super Mario Brothers 3. Because, you know, reasons. Exactly. And until recently, until just the last few years, we didn't really know about the creation of Mario Brothers. But the Iwata Asks series, which I bring up every so often, which was fantastic when Satoru Iwata would actually sit down with Nintendo developers and interview them about the latest game they'd created and all the choices they made and everything like that. They would sometimes drift into the past and tell some background stories, too, to set things up. And so Iwata actually sat down with Miyamoto and did a very detailed look at how Mario Brothers came about. First of all, Mario Brothers was less a Miyamoto creation and more of a Gunpei Yokoi creation. And we talked about this in our Gunpei Yokoi episode. The basic premise for the game actually came from Yokoi, not from Miyamoto. Miyamoto, I think, was very focused in these early days on kind of realism within a certain degree. I mean, how much realism is there really when you're using a hammer to smash barrels while you're going up to take on a giant ape? But, you know, the the character of Mario was created from a place of realism. It never occurred to him that you wouldn't animate the hair, for instance. If there's hair, it has to be animated, so we're putting a cap on. and. I want to make sure the arms are distinct, so I'm putting him in overalls. So he's coming from a place of realism to a degree. And part of that realism was, if Mario fell from a great height in Donkey Kong, it killed him. You could fall from a small height, but small, fall several levels, and it killed you. Well, Yokoi, for this follow-up game, had the idea, maybe it would be fun if Mario could fall from a great height. If he can bounce around a stage and fall this way and bounce back up this way and just have fun flinging himself all over the stage, wouldn't that be liberating? Wouldn't that be interesting? So they went ahead and did that. They created a space with platforms, multiple platforms, that Mario could just freely jump around. It's still a single screen game, but you're no longer defined by that limitation of falling. Jumping around becomes kind of the key gameplay mechanic. So then what do you do with that in terms of enemies? Well, they thought if the main gameplay mechanic is falling from a height, jumping, and then falling down, that the thing that would make the most sense to do would be to have Mario land on enemies to kill them. So they they implement that. They have some guys in there, and they implement this. But they discover that when they do that, Because of hardware limitations, again, it makes it too difficult because it's hard to control Mario until when you are actually landing on top of an enemy and killing it or landing just to the side of the enemy and it kills you. So the jumping on the head thing isn't going to work. Obviously, we come back to that in Super Mario Brothers, but there's no jumping on the head thing in original Mario Brothers, though they did try that first. So that's where that kind of game mechanic comes from.
0: In order to actually defeat any of them, you pretty much immobilize them by hitting them from underneath, making them flip over, or using the POW switch in order to make everything flip over.
1: Right, exactly. Because they discovered the landing on top of things didn't work. So then what they said is, okay, well, we've got all these platforms, because they've already got that idea that you're bouncing around between platforms. So since we've got the platforms and jumping on top of them doesn't work... Let's hit them from below. Let's have the gameplay mechanic be that you get on the platform below them and bounce them. So at first, it was just that. Bounce an enemy and it kills it. Kind of like how if you break bricks with Goombas on them in Super Mario Brothers, you know, that kills them as well. So they implement that and it turns out, okay, this is too easy. There's no risk because now we can just avoid enemies, just come up from below them and hit them and they're gone and there's just no risk to it. So they're like, okay, so now this means that we have to have the enemies just be stunned when you hit them, and then you have to actually go up and touch them to knock them away because then you have to expose yourself. It's not just hit them once and they're gone. So now we come back to Miyamoto and his realism thing again. Even in these fantasy worlds, Miyamoto consistently wants there to be some semblance of reality to what's going on. So they thought, Okay, well, why is it then when we're hitting them from below, it's not killing them? It's not immediately killing them. How is it that they're able to retreat into themselves or just be stunned or whatever? Well, logically, obviously, it's because it's a turtle. You hit the turtle and it retreats into its shell. That's where you get the Koopas. (laughs) They didn't call them Koopas yet, but... They called them shell creepers in Mario Brothers, but it's, it's basically the same thing. It's, it's the Koopa. That's where they get it from, is this idea, well, that's what makes it realistic. And, of course, they're crab enemies then, too. And, again, crabs are animals that have shells and can hide in their shells. So they decide to use shelled enemies to kind of create some kind of logic to the idea that when you hit them once from below, they don't immediately die. They just retreat into themselves. So a couple more things come into play then. They know that they want the enemies to appear and then, you know, they want a steady progression of enemies that you have to deal with, but they hit another problem now. So you have enemies appearing at the top of the screen, you know, just coming into the play area and they're walking around and they're walking around and, you know, theoretically you're killing them as you go, but you're not going to kill all of them. You're going to miss some of them. And then you're going to end up with enemies at the bottom of the screen. And there's nothing to do with them because you have to hit enemies from below. Once they reach the bottom layer, there's no below. And so they're just there. So now you're saying, well, they can just vanish off the screen, right? I mean, big deal. And it's like, I agree with you. But this is definitely a character trait of Miyamoto is he wants a certain level of plausibility, even in these fantasy worlds where nothing much makes sense. So they can't just vanish off the screen They They have to be coming from somewhere and going somewhere. Let's make some pipes. It's exactly right. So, you know, he's driving along one day and he sees some pipes sticking out of a building. And it's just a very striking image to him. And he decides, well, that's what we'll do. We'll have them come out of a pipe at the top of the screen and then disappear into a pipe at the bottom of the screen. And that keeps the enemies moving. It makes sure that any of you don't kill gets stuck around. So that's how you get pipes. So now that there are pipes, this is clearly a sewer. And now that this is a sewer, not a construction site, Mario is clearly a plumber. And there you go. Now Mario's a plumber. With turtles and crabs and those other things. Right. And fireballs. Yes. (laughs) And they decide this should be a competitive game. Again, they don't talk about their influences outside of... Other forms of media, like I've said, but you figure Mario Brothers has to be partially influenced by Joust because in Joust, you have to knock out enemies and then you have to knock them again to get rid of them, to get rid of the eggs or they hatch and create new enemies again. And you have multiple platforms. You're flying instead of jumping, but you have multiple platforms and it's a cooperative, competitive matchup where you can just go around killing the enemies together where you can compete with each other and <laughs> joust each other off the screen. So you figure joust has to be an influence. But again, they don't talk about these things, so we can only assume. But they do decide it's going to be a competitive game. So they need to introduce another character. They have limited sprite capabilities, so making it a palette swap is the logical thing to do. And they decide to make him Mario's brother, Luigi. We don't know for certain where that name comes from. There are stories, but these stories haven't really been confirmed. The most persistent story is that there was a pizza place in Seattle, someplace near Nintendo of America's headquarters, that happened to be called Mario and Luigi's Pizza. And so they were inspired by that because they already had Mario. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not true. Maybe they just, you know, Mario's obviously an Italian name. So maybe they just picked another Italian name. I mean, who knows? The important thing is this is where Luigi comes in to make it competitive. And, of course, the other thing you mentioned uh, was the uh, collecting of the coins. So the idea of collecting items for points is something that had already been well established and, of course, was most notable in Pac-Man. Miyamoto knew he wanted to have something that people would collect, but he's always thinking about the player experience as well. That's the other hallmark of of Miyamoto, is trying to figure out the optimal player experience. He was afraid that in this sewer setting where you have all of these things coming out of the pipes that are harmful to you, he was afraid if he did a Pac-Man style thing with fruit or something like that, the player would be afraid that that was something harmful as well, and would avoid it. The player, I, I would tend to give the player a little more credit, but then I have created exactly zero multi-million selling video game franchises. So I don't know how much my opinion is really worth. <laughs> but he decided that he needed something that would be universally like considered a good thing. Something that would never, ever harm us. Could never possibly destroy us. That's right. The Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. <laughs> and he figured that coins, money. Everybody likes money. Money's not going to kill us. I mean, you can do all sorts of meta stuff with that statement, but, yeah, you know, you figured everyone would be comfortable with coins. So that's why he did coins, because he just thought that would be universally accepted as something positive rather than negative. So there's another element. That's why you get coins. That's why you get turtles. That's why you get Mario jumping around. All of these things just come out of solving gameplay problems or solving logical world problems, and you're starting to see the formation of Mario's world here. Even though Mario Brothers is not really directly a part of the Super Mario Brothers series, you can see some of these elements starting to take shape. Miyamoto was responsible for some of that, but Yokoi, Gunpei Yokoi, really was responsible for a lot of the basic gameplay elements. Yokoi was very much Miyamoto's mentor, because... Miyamoto had some drawing skills, but he had never really made toys or games before. And Yokoi was an old hand at doing that. and So between them, they come up with something special. So that was basically it for Miyamoto on arcade games, because, of course, now Nintendo is moving on to its Famicom. It's moving on to the home. And this is a period of time where Yamauchi was really quite ahead of his time. He realized during this time period that diversification was going to be necessary. You didn't just want programmers, engineers, etc. doing your work. You wanted designers. You wanted animators. You wanted artists. You even wanted musicians. And Yamauchi was very early to see this. Uh, He wasn't the only one seeing this at this time. Messiah Nakamura at Namco was coming to the same conclusion about the same time. Toru Iwatani, who made Pac-Man, was not a programmer or an engineer. He was just a guy that was hired to fix faulty circuit boards as a technician, and then he was given a chance to design a game. And Yamauchi's kind of doing the same thing. So Miyamoto was kind of a fluke. But now they're starting to bring in people specifically as designers. And one of the people that gets brought in is an artist named Takashi Tezuka. Tezuka is one of the real unsung heroes of Nintendo. People that are really into Nintendo or into video game history kind of know that he exists and kind of knows that he's there. But he is really Miyamoto's co-pilot. On some of the most important games that that he made, Super Mario Brothers, Legends of Zelda, both of those games were joint productions between Miyamoto and Tezuka, and they would not have been the same game if Miyamoto was the only one making them. Now, yes, Miyamoto was the one in charge. he was the one guiding overall development, but Tezuka added a lot of important and interesting ideas as well. So Takashi Tezuka comes in in this period, and Miyamoto and Tezuka work together a little bit on a game called devil world. It's the only Miyamoto game that was never released in the United States because of the well, devil world. It had a little demon guy running around. It had a cross. It had all this religious iconography and Nintendo America was not going to touch that religious iconography in those days.
0: We are a wholesome, family friendly organization,
1: right? But it's basically a Pac-Man clone. It's, it's a maze game like Pac-Man. We'll put it in the show notes. So they work together on that. And then Miyamoto does another game, Excite Bike, which uh, I know you're very familiar with. Tezuka doesn't really have much to do with Excite Bike. He helps a little bit on some of the art, but it's, it's not primarily his thing. And after doing those games, then uh, Miyamoto is charged with doing a port of Kung Fu for the NES. And then at about that time, it becomes clear that the company is going to be moving on to the Famicom disk system and that the company is going to leave cartridge games behind entirely. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I know. I know. But that was really the thought. They thought they had reached the limits on cartridge memory for a reasonable price. And the disc was going to allow for far more expansive memory, and it was going to be far cheaper media uh, and all of this stuff. So they really thought that they were going to transition to that fully. So Miyamoto wanted to do cartridge games where he took everything that he had learned working on the Famicom and working in video games and put it all together into one package. Excitebike had scrolling. Something that they hadn't really done much with to that point. But Excitebike had smooth horizontal scrolling. Devil World, even though it was a Pac-Man clone, kind of the remarkable thing about Devil World was that they were able to get bigger sprites into the game than they had been able to do in the past. So he wanted to create a game that had bigger sprites and scrolling and was kind of a culmination of everything that Nintendo had done. From the Donkey Kong games, he was going to take some of the platforms and some of the lifts and pulleys and all of these kind of conveyances that were found in those games. Some of the moving platforms in Super Mario Brothers, I mean, they're basically taken straight from Donkey Kong Jr., for instance. From Balloon Fight, which he didn't work on, but from Balloon Fight had this great kind of flying through the air, floating swimming motion to it. So they were going to have underwater levels that were going to kind of take advantage of this kind of floaty, swimmy kind of mechanic that they had figured out how to do. They were going to have shooter game sections where it's just like a scrolling shooter, like a a Xevious or something like that, where you're on a rocket ship and you're blasting away enemies as you go. So there's going to be land levels, there's going to be sea levels, there's going to be air levels. It's going to be Mario, but it's going to be Mario bigger than you've ever seen him before. And instead of being a black background, which most graphically intensive games still used because it meant less graphical elements to deal with, it was going to take place in a bright background with blue skies and all of this great stuff. This is going to be the ultimate. Super Mario game to bid farewell to consoles. Green Hills. Yeah. So the game was primarily a collaboration between three people. The total team was closer to six to eight people, but they were kind of three core people. Miyamoto, of course, who was the director of the game. Tezuka, who we just mentioned, who basically served as co-designer of the game and then a programmer by the name of Toshihiko Nakago who worked for a company called SRD. One thing that a lot of people don't realize about Nintendo, Nintendo did not employ programmers until they were working on Super NES games. There were no programmers employed at Nintendo. All of those arcade games all of those NES games, they were designed by Nintendo staff, but they were not programmed by Nintendo staff. Well, obviously, who programmed them? In the NES era, there were two companies that did pretty much all of the programming. One of them was Intelligent Systems, which a lot of people know is the originators of the Fire Emblem games. And the other one was SRD Corporation or SRD Company, which is the company that Toshihiko Nakago belonged to. Both of these companies would ultimately be bought by Nintendo and become Nintendo subsidiaries. But they both started as independent companies, and these were the companies that were contracted to do the programming on most of their Famicom games. Nintendo did not employ in-house programmers. So Nakago was kind of the third leg of this uh, tripod or the stool that created Super Mario Brothers. And his contributions were very important because he was going to be doing something that really hadn't been done in the home before, which was doing a fast action scrolling game with full color backgrounds and all of this stuff. Again, this had been accomplished in the arcade at this point, and you have to figure that Miyamoto was partially influenced by the Namco game Pac-Land, because Pac-Land was not nearly as complex or interesting a platform game as Super Mario Bros. was. But it did feature a big sprite of Pac-Man, and it was Pac-Man based on the cartoon that was done in the early 80s. So this was a Pac-Man with arms and legs, which is why he could be part of a platformer. And it was a big, bold sprite. It was scrolling, and it had full-color backgrounds and all of this. It's impossible to believe that they weren't partially influenced by that, especially since it's very clear that in this period, Nintendo was really, really influenced by Namco. We talked about how The Legend of Zelda was definitely partially influenced by the Namco Tower of Druaga game. We talked about that in one of our Japanese RPG episodes. Well, a lot of people don't realize that the game Metroid is 100% definitely influenced by a Namco arcade game called Baraduke, which featured a protagonist on an alien world with a big gun, who wore a yellow suit, and oh, by the way, at the end of the game, after you beat the final boss, is revealed to be a woman. Sound familiar? Metroid! Except it's the year, it's a year or two before Metroid. So it's clear in this period that Nintendo is paying close attention to what Namco's doing, because Namco's really at the top of their game when it comes to arcade games. They're they are one of the big guys. And its it's pretty clear that there was an influence from Pac-Land in Super Mario Brothers as well. Regardless of where they got it from, you know, those were kind of the big tenets. Scrolling, full-color backgrounds, big sprite, land, sea, and air. Well, obviously, the air part of it gets dropped. The secret areas where you can climb vines and you walk along the clouds for a bit, you know, that, that appears sometimes in the game, That's vestiges of that original concept, because they had some of the assets that they were going to use for these aerial stages. And then when they cut the aerial stages, they decided that they would at least still get some use out of the assets. It's also a very good thing that they kind of cut out the aerial stages and some of the more actiony concepts of the game, because initially Mario was going to jump by hitting the up button on the D-pad. Oh, no. No. Yeah, because the, the other button was going to be used for various combat actions. Well, that would have just been an absolute disaster. <laughs> yeah, just a bit. So it's, it's a good thing they got rid of that. Obviously, some of the combat vestiges still remain in the Fireflower power-up, where you do get to shoot at some things from time to time. But there was initially going to be much more action involved as well. The other big thing that changed once they got going on it they liked the bigger sprite. I mean they really wanted to go with a bigger more detailed Mario. However, they found that by having a bigger sprite occupying more of the world, they could not render as much of the world simultaneously. You couldn't see as far ahead to see what was coming up next. Mhm. And this was suboptimal. They realized that they could pull the camera out a little bit in order to be able to see more of the world. But then when they do that, then Mario looks kind of small again. So it was actually the programmer, Nakago, that came up with the idea, well, why don't we have a small and a big Mario? See, originally it was just the, the big Mario sprite. That was Mario through the whole game. But Nakago, for this uh, visualization of the world idea, says, well, let's have him be small sometimes too. Miyamoto and Tezuka, they, they liked that, and so they, they went with that idea and came up with the idea of the mushroom power-up to turn him big. And they decided that he has to start small and get big, because it's more satisfying that way, that you've got this puny character, and then you get this power-up, and suddenly he's big. Some sources say that the mushroom was a specific reference to Alice in Wonderland. You know, eat me, drink me, and the stuff that Alice eats and drinks that makes her big and small. That's actually not true. It's Miyamoto said in a more recent interview that that came down to some mistranslation of some interviews that he gave. He tied in his head magic mushrooms together with kind of fantasy settings. And I'm sure Alice was probably one of the fantasy settings he was thinking of when when he was thinking of mushrooms, but it it wasn't a direct homage specifically to that literature. But still, they come up with the mushroom in order to uh, turn him big. And very famously, in that first level of Super Mario Brothers, they make it so that it's virtually impossible to avoid that first mushroom and this goes back to miyamoto trying to anticipate the player experience again because the very first thing you see in super mario brothers is a goomba that walks towards you and kills you unless you jump over it or jump on its head well the goomba is a mushroom i mean it's mushroom shaped it's meant to be a mushroom so then you hit this block and another mushroom comes out of this block and it's coming right for us. They were afraid that the player would see that as an enemy that they caused to pop up. Because remember, power-ups and power-ups coming out of blocks, this is, this is still very new, very new concepts in 1985 when they're working on this. So nowadays we see something like that and it's like, well, clearly it's a power-up, but that wouldn't necessarily be the case in 1985. They decided to make it so that it would be almost impossible to avoid that mushroom once you hit that question mark block. Since you can't get out of the way, the mushroom will hit you and you'll realize, oh, this is a good thing. I'm more powerful now. They make all sorts of considerations like that. Uh, Tezuka and Miyamoto have talked about in interviews when they were designing the levels for Super Mario Brothers. They really paid close attention to the flow. They really tried to anticipate how players would kind of move through the world and spent tons and tons of time balancing the appearance of jumps and enemies and obstacles to provide kind of a smooth transition through the game. And and that really shows. I mean, another example in the first level that I'm sure you recall is two spots where you have a set of blocks that are kind of set up like steps where you go up the steps and then you jump a gap and then you go down the other set of steps. There's two places like that in the first level of the game. The first place where that appears, there is no pit in between those two sets of steps. The second place where it appears, there is a pit. And if you miss the jump, you die. So they gave you a practice run, a place where it was okay to fail to make the jump before they gave you the perilous jump. So you could figure out how the pixel perfect parabolic arc jumping in Super Mario Brothers worked before you were really tested by it. It's just, that's the kind of thing that they kind of tried to put through the whole game. And then of course, they also came up with uh, the idea of being able to skip ahead stages, uh, which he actually took directly from Excite Excite Bike allowed you to select between three different uh, stages right off the bat. And so he thought it would be a good idea to have essentially a stage select so that a more skilled player could skip to the later parts of the game. But he didn't think it would be fun to just have that just be on a on a menu at the start of the game. He thought it would be much more fun to hide it in the game. And so that's how you came up with the Warp Zones. Uh, interestingly, they were actually making Mario and Zelda at the same time. And kind of coming up with ideas simultaneously and sometimes deciding that this was more Mario thing or this was more Zelda thing. They haven't gone bit by bit and piece by piece into most of that. But just as a little trivia, the fire sticks the rotating fire rods in the bowser castles in the first game those were actually originally zelda things which kind of makes sense those kind of fit in with a lot of the zelda motif but then they decided to use it in the mario game instead so there was some kind of cross-pollinization across mario and zelda because they were literally working on them at the same time they did bring the fire sticks in later on Oh, sure. And, of course, then there's Link's Awakening, which gets really crazy, and has Goombas and Piranha plants. But that's a a whole other story. (laughs) Or a new purchase with his new (laughs) re-release. That's right. Shameless plug. No, Nintendo did not pay us to say that. Yeah, I mean, it was just, it was a love letter to cartridge gaming, and it was a kind of culmination of everything they'd ever managed to do up to that point. And, obviously, it was a massive, massive hit. I mean, it was a well balanced game. It was a kind of perfect jump system that parabolic arc that able to change your flight just a little bit in midair. The the pixel perfect collision detection. It kind of all just worked together to create just a brilliant game. And of course, that became the template. All eight and sixteen bit game design that followed. I mean, everything from Mega Man to Castlevania to Sonic the Hedgehog. Uh, I mean, not all of them were directly copying the gameplay. Some of them, like Castlevania or Mega Man, had more action elements mixed in. But, you know, it all kind of harkens back to the basic ideas that were established by Super Mario Brothers. So Super Mario Brothers is a massive hit in the home. Remember that at this time, Nintendo is also still technically an arcade company as well. Now, in Japan at this point, because the Famicom has been out since 1983, and has become so huge. In Japan, they are really ending. They are really dialing back and bringing down that whole arcade side of things. But in the United States, you know, the Famicom, the NES doesn't really start shipping in quantity until 1986. It doesn't really, really get going until 1987. At the time Super Mario Bros. comes out, Nintendo of America is still very dependent on the arcade market for its revenue. Now, at this point, Nintendo's not very interested in doing much in the way of new arcade hardware anymore, so they've just basically started converting Famicom games to play in the arcade. They have their VS, or versus arcade hardware, that they're basically just porting Famicom games to. But they're even getting out of this in Japan, and so they have no plans to adapt Super Mario Brothers as an arcade game. But in Nintendo of America... The president of the coin-op division of Nintendo America, Frank Ballou, uh, who had been an old Atari guy before he had come to Nintendo, basically he saw that game and was like, no, we have to have this. We need this game in the arcade. And he's able to convince management back in Japan to create an arcade version of the game. And so they create a a VS or a versus Super Mario Brothers cabinet uh, just for release in America. They don't do it in Japan. But in America, that's still kind of important. And uh, Miyamoto and Tezuka, particularly Tezuka, more than Miyamoto, actually does work on that game. Some of the levels in it are basically the same as the NES levels. But of course, this is the arcade. You have to munch quarters. You have to ramp up the difficulty compared to a console game. So Tezuka also makes a bunch of harder kind of expert levels. And they have a fun time doing that. And because kind of making those expert levels was really cool and really neat and really fun, they decide to do a sequel to Super Mario Brothers for the Famicom, Super Mario Brothers 2, where they just make it really, really hard. And the inspiration for that was doing the expert levels on the arcade game, which is essentially, in a way, Super Mario Brothers 1.5. So we get Super Mario Brothers 2, or I should say Japan, and only Japan get Super Mario Brothers 2. And this game is mean. Very mean. Because, I mean, you've, you've, of course, played it, and it's like Lost Levels Incarnation on Super Mario All-Stars and stuff like that, right?
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Can't get much past level one or sometimes level two.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, my gosh. You know, I just, of course, talked about how they went to all this effort to make sure that you knew that the mushrooms that came out of the question mark blocks were your friends. You know, making sure that you couldn't avoid the mushroom, you know, in level 1-1. One, one. So what do they do in Super Mario Bros. 2? The very first mushroom that you pop out is a poison mushroom. No! They do put a kind of skull on it and make it a kind of sickly purplish black color to try to impart the idea that this thing maybe isn't so good. But still, you have been trained. Over the course of eight worlds, each consisting of four levels, that when you have a mushroom coming towards you that you have gotten out of a block, it is good for you and you need to grab that thing. And then they deliberately, I mean, almost everybody dies at the very start of the very first level, the very first time they play it, because they pick up that mushroom. You know, if if you haven't like read about the game already online or something. I mean, back in the day, people didn't know. So you die at the very beginning of the game because they deliberately trick you.
0: And that's pretty much the first time they have anything bad ever
1: come out of a question mark. Exactly. It's just like, wow. And then, of course, the level designs are just brutal. They now have red piranha plants, which uh, in the original Super Mario Brothers, if you're right next to a pipe, the piranha plant would no longer come up anymore. So you could take your time getting on top of that pipe. And now, of course, in Mario 2, they have red piranha plants in addition to the blue piranha plants that always pop up and down out of the pipes, whether you're standing right next to it or far away from it. They have certain levels where the wind changes so that you're getting blown around by the wind while you jump. They just have impossible jumps. They have places where you have to bounce off of enemies to make it. They have clusters of enemies that are very hard to navigate through. I mean, this game is brutal.
0: And you really have to understand the Mario physics. I don't think you (laughs) mentioned in the original game, the way that you jump was very intricate to how the entire mechanics work. Mm -hmm. You can do a light tap of the jump button. You do a little hop. You do a long press of that jump button. You do a longer jump. When you're jumping in the air, you can push left or right and you can Mm -hmm. guide and move Mario around. You can do an accelerated jump. And then you can go further. You can do a standing still jump and sort of jump, fly back, and swing back in. What Lost Levels really imparted is it expected that you knew all of those tricks. You knew how to manipulate that jumping back ways, forward, left, right, up, down, through the nth dimension. And you could do it consistently in quick succession and flawlessly in order to achieve your goal. Right. This is very much how, in a modern context, you have Super Mario Maker. A lot of those levels that are made out there are made by people who really, really understand the mechanics of how Mario jump physics work. Right. They take advantage of that. That's why we have Kaizo Mario, the <laughs> ubiquitous, you're going to die 16 billion times before you figure out how to defeat this thing. But it's an interesting thing, and it. Interesting if you look at how the uh, hardware works for how the Nintendo controller communicate to the Nintendo and how it actually detects what a short jump press is, what a long jump press is, and how does it figure that out? And it's actually sort of like a little shift register that goes on with that entire controller talking to the Nintendo. And it's, okay, I'm querying the controller so many times a second. And there's sort of this registry of holding up a certain amount of time and it's sort of shifting that all off. I remember watching a video that really describes how the controller communicates with the NES really well.
1: I will try to add that into the show notes for you. Absolutely. And obviously Super Mario Bros. 2 was not as hard as a modern Kaizu level, but also you didn't have a player base that was as familiar with and had been playing Mario for as many years as people had been (laughs) when the first Kaizu levels appeared. So we are talking about something that people were just not prepared for. It was hard. And then you add on top of that, the one interesting thing that they did do is this is when you first get a distinction between Mario and Luigi as well. Because they made Luigi a better jumper. Like he could jump higher, faster, farther. But he was also a very slippery character. Friction didn't work the same way with him as it did with Mario. You could be running, and then when you stop running, he doesn't necessarily stop right away. So you could jump further, but you also had trouble controlling him and could fall right into a cliff because he doesn't stop when you tell him to.
0: And Mario still had that, too. He still had a few pixels of slow down if you're running and you're doing a jump. They just exaggerated that a lot more
1: with Luigi. Exactly. Uh, But this is kind of the first time that you have a distinction between the two characters, because in both Mario Brothers and Super Mario Brothers, Luigi is just a palette swap of Mario. But now for this game, they did decide to give him a distinct ability, and it's it's a distinct ability that kind of remains his hallmark. And just about every game going forward, Luigi is the one that jumps a little higher, but controls a little more weirdly. Whereas Mario is kind of more slow, steady, solid, reliable kind of character. So uh, that kind of that dates to this game as well. So, yeah, this game's super hard. It's sent to the U.S. for evaluation. Uh, The Nintendo of America staff has wide leeway on what they can actually, what they actually publish. And the Nintendo of America guys, particularly Howard Phillips, who kind of tests all the games that come in, are like, no, no, no. American gamers are not going to like this. American gamers are going to be frustrated. There will be crying children across the nation, and no one will like Mario anymore. No. Oh, hell no. (laughs) So, of course, Super Mario Bros. 2, in this incarnation, is not released in the United States until it is included as part of the Super Mario All-Stars compilation on the Super Nintendo some years later as Super Mario Bros. The Lost Levels. Instead, they get a completely different game that went through a bunch of strange permutations. It kind of started as a Mario game, then it wasn't a Mario game, and finally, it became a Mario game again. So this one actually has its origins at SRD. I mentioned SRD before is the the company... That did a lot of the subcontract programming. And uh, Nakago at SRD was the guy who programmed Super Mario Brothers and Super Mario Brothers 2. Well, at SRD, they decided to start doing some experiments on taking kind of this Mario gameplay idea of running and maneuvering through a scrolling level. And instead of having it happen in a horizontal space, having it happen in a vertical space. Where you're just kind of going up and up and up and up and up, like ice climbers, but more interesting. And they decided that kind of if you were going to do a strictly vertical game, because this this original Mario style prototype was entirely vertical, no horizontal. Then what would make it more fun is if you could pick up things and throw them. Not just picking up enemies and throw them away, but it meant to be a cooperative game. The original prototype was cooperative. And so you and your friend are moving up and then You can pick up your friend and throw them up to a higher level, and you can pick up things and stack them to reach higher levels. It's like they decided throwing mechanics would just be a perfect thing to do with this vertical up, 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 up. So they create this prototype of a game where you're just going vertically up, 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 and you pick up things and throw them and stack them. Some of that gameplay is starting to sound a little bit familiar, I think, (laughs) to Mario people. Just a bit. So... Once they had that prototype together, they took it to Nintendo, where it was evaluated by Miyamoto and by a new hire at the company named uh, Kintsuki Tanabe. And the two of them kind of looked it over and played around with it a little bit. Miyamoto was like, well, this isn't quite working. He, he didn't think it quite worked right. He decided that they really needed to bring it back to something a little more Mario-like instead. So ditch the cooperative play, the simultaneous cooperative play. Go back to single character. Yeah, have some vertical areas, but let's have some horizontal scrolling too. Let's not make it all vertical. Keep the throwing, keep the stacking, but you know, just kind of vary things up a little bit. And so they started kind of playing around with it, and Tanabe started playing around with it, you know, trying to put something together that was a little more Mario like. So at the same time. There's a media technology expo that's going to be going on in Japan called Yumikojo, which essentially means dream factory in English. It's just going to kind of be this, this big showcase. Fuji Corporation was the, the sponsor of this technology expo. Fuji was, was involved in many areas, but they were involved in TV as well. That's one of the things that they were involved in. And they created some mascot characters, some animated cartoon mascot characters for this Dream Factory exposition. And so Nintendo saw this as a big thing, big publicity, good thing. They made a deal with Fuji Television to create a game based on these mascot characters for the expo. They decided that this prototype game system, uh, this prototype vertical stacking game thing, would be the game engine that they used to create this game. So uh, Tanabe, who I talked about, was put in charge of this concept called Doki Doki Panic. It was a disc system game because this is the period of time when Nintendo thought that they were going to be going disc. And, you know, it's the Dream Factory is the name of the expo. So they come up with this idea, I guess, of setting it in a dream, crazy world kind of thing. I actually don't know if Doki Doki Panic technically took place in a dream world or not. I think you go into some sort of book. Yeah. You pick up vegetables and throw them. You can throw enemies at each other. There's platforming action. There's vertical sections. There's Birdo and picking up his eggs and throwing them at him. And, you know, that's, that's Doki Doki panic. Well, now we need a sequel to Mario in the United States because they're just not, they're not going to take Super Mario Brothers 2. It's, it's terrible from NOA's perspective. So this started as a Mario prototype. It was deliberately tweaked and made to have vaguely Mario-like gameplay, they decided, well, let's take Doki Doki Panic and turn it into a Mario game. So Doki Doki Panic had four characters because the mascot family, there were four of them. There was a husband, wife, and two children or whatever. In order to make that a four-player game, Mario, you have Mario and Luigi, that's obvious, and then they made uh, the princess, Peach, so they called her Toadstool back then, They made Princess Toadstool a third character, and then they made uh, just a Toad as the fourth character. They really have different traits from each other, and this is, again, because the characters in the original game were made to have very different traits from each other. They made a few other changes to make it more Mario-like. The original Doki Doki Panic did not have big and small characters, and it didn't have the mushrooms to pick up to become big. So they, they added the idea of big and small characters because that's Mario-like. They added the Star Man appearing every so often to make it more Mario-like. They put coins in there. You know, they, they put in some Mario trappings to make it feel more familiar as a Mario game. But other than those few things and the characters, of course, it doesn't seem like any other Mario game. And that's because it wasn't meant to be a Mario game. And it was not a collaboration between Miyamoto and Tezuka like all the other Mario games of this period were. Miyamoto was still the producer on it, but uh, this guy Tanabe was the director of it. This is also a period of time where they start defining the Mario characters a little more. You see, when Miyamoto created the original game, there was no tie-in material to it. There was no kind of official art style. Miyamoto would plan to have a professional artist come in and draw the box art and the cartridge art for the game. Because in Japan, they used art. It wasn't like in the U.S. where they used like pixelated screenshots from the game. There was actually kind of an artistic tableau. But there was no time to hire an artist. They were just on too tight a schedule. So Miyamoto ended up drawing things himself. Miyamoto is a decent artist. I mean, he can draw, but it wasn't really kind of professionally done. It was just kind of thrown together. On about this time, because even as the US version of Super Mario Brothers 2 is being made, work has already begun on Super Mario Brothers 3. Work on Super Mario Brothers 3 started in 1986, basically right after Super Mario Brothers 2, Japan, was finished. That's what Tezuka's working on while is making Doki Doki Panic. They're starting to define the characters a little more. And once again, Nintendo was kind of ahead of the curve a little bit in that they were starting to bring professional animators into the company people from the world of anime and from the world of cartoons to do professional animation of their characters as their Famicom games are getting more complex. So they hired a guy named Yoichi Kotabi, who had worked for years at Toei Animation, which is one of the big animation houses in Japan. At this time, a professional animator would have never thought that working on a video game was was something necessarily worth their time, because animation was a very well-developed field and video games were not. But this was the period where animation was also getting cheaper and cheaper. And we've talked about this before in other episodes, kind of the Hanna-Barbera idea of limited animation where you have mostly static shots and you only animate a very, very little bit and you kind of animate in very, very few frames so that movements end up being kind of jerky and scenes are kind of static with only a few moving parts. You have the famous slide-in. Right. And Japan was really taking this to the extreme. I mean, if you look at something like, say, Speed Racer from the late 1970s, there are a lot of close-up static shots of characters where their mouths are moving and basically nothing else is moving. We can put some Speed Racer or some similar anime from that time period in the show notes to just kind of give the idea of what we're talking about. So Kotabe was getting kind of fed up with the animation industry because he is an animator. He is supposed to draw pictures that create the frames of movement of a character and nothing's moving anymore in animation. Meanwhile, you have this new medium of video game where everything is very animated, even though it's still primitive, even though because of the hardware, they can't do very many frames. Everything is moving. So there's nothing limited about it. So Kotabe was very intrigued by this. So when Nintendo asked him to come join the company and be an animator for them, I mean, he he did it. He He was very happy to do it. And so in addition to animating, he's also doing regular art because, of course, you know, Animators are also artists because they're drawing the the different pictures that then get joined together (laughs) to make the animation. Kind of comes with the field. Right. If you look at the box art to Super Mario Brothers, Mario in that box art looks pretty much the way Mario has always looked and always will look because Miyamoto had been drawing him since Donkey Kong. I mean, Miyamoto had a very good sense by 1985 of who Mario was. But if you look at the other characters in that, most of them look very different. Princess Toadstool, or Peach's face, is a completely different shape. And Bowser is gray and doesn't look very turtle or very dinosaur-like. Miyamoto actually based the design of Bowser on that cover art off of a character called the Ox King from an animated adaptation of the Chinese novel Journey to the West. And so he's far more ox-like than he is turtle-like or dinosaur-like. Completely different conceptions of the characters. So Kotabi comes in at this time while they're working on Super Mario Brothers 3, and he also does some animation work on Doki Doki Panic. He actually does the animation of the magic carpets that the pigeons ride in Doki Doki Panic, which, uh, if you go back and look at that, is actually really incredibly well animated for the time. Uh, it's because they had a professional animator doing it. He goes back and he actually defines the look of the characters. So characters like Bowser and Princess Toadstool or Peach, as we now call her in the West today, really get their look. Even the Toads really get their look kind of in this 1987, 1988 period when Kotabi comes in and defines the look of these characters. So that's kind of another milestone that most people don't realize or most people don't think about because it's not directly in the games themselves, but it's in kind of the surrounding media and the image we have of Mario and, and his companions. I would want to point
0: out, too, that the box art in question is not the U.S. box art. This is right. purely the Japanese box art. So if you go looking, I don't remember that on my Super Mario Brothers 2, <laughs> 3, and 1. What are you talking about? (laughs)
1: Exactly. You know, we're talking about the Japanese version here. Right. So this is a bit of a tangent, but basically the reason for that, the reason for the different box art is, as we've talked about before, Nintendo was having to overcome a lot of skepticism with bringing the NES to market after the complete collapse of the console industry in North America. Now, one thing that. Atari-era games, VCS-era games, but not just Atari's games, also Mattel's and Coleco's as well, were notorious for is having this really, really fancy box art, these professionally drawn covers that, of course, looked nothing like the very primitive, very blocky graphics that were found in an actual game. And so... There was a fear on Nintendo's part that part of what burned consumers out on video games was kind of this bait and switch where you're giving this glimpse into this fantastic world through the box and then you get in the game and it's like, I'm controlling a square and why is that duck coming towards me? So one of the mandates that Nintendo had and what Nintendo of America decided to do at the beginning was that they would not put anything on a box cover that was not actual in-game graphical content. Obviously, they didn't stick with this. Obviously, that changes after a while. But if you look at the original lineup of NES games, all of them have pixel art on their cover instead of some elaborate drawing.
0: Pretty much everything that is considered the
1: quote-unquote black box generation of games. Exactly. And that was very deliberate. And that's why they deviated from the box art in Japan, is because they were not going to put anything on there that wasn't an actual in-game element. So instead, you have that picture of Mario, like, about to die because (laughs) he's going to fall in the lava, because he missed his jump. Kind of a strange choice, but whatever. So... Just to kind of briefly go over the next few games, unfortunately, I wish we had more information on the development of some of the succeeding Mario games. We really don't. There's kind of a gap in our knowledge. We know a lot now about Donkey Kong, Mario Brothers, and Super Mario Brothers because of Iwata Asks interviews. And we know a lot about more recent Mario games from the Wii on for the exact same reason of these Iwata Asks interviews. We don't know a lot about the stuff that followed kind of Super Mario Brothers 2. So we can cover that very quickly. Super Mario Brothers 3 was initially meant to be something actually completely different. Uh, remember, Super Mario Brothers 2 US is this completely separate game that wasn't a Mario game. So after Super Mario Brothers and Super Mario Brothers 2 Japan, which were very similar games, just one was more difficult than the other. Tezuka, who really took the lead on Mario 3 because now he's the director. Miyamoto's still producing it. He still has lots of input. But Tezuka is the guy really running the show now. Tezuka wanted to do something completely different. He thought that they had kind of played out the idea of the side-scrolling run and jump, that there wasn't a lot more to do with that. So he actually conceived of Super Mario Brothers as a top down, but not straight top down, kind of top down with a slight diagonal turn to it, almost like an isometric type game, except not with a side view being the most prominent view, but the top view being the most prominent view.
0: Sort of akin to The Legend of Zelda Dungeons.
1: Well, no, I think more akin to uh, some of the games that we talked about in our uh, British Arcade Adventure episode, games like Batman and Head Over Heel and Night Lore and those kind of games where you're looking at it from the top down, but it's not straight top down. You've still got kind of this diagonal tilt to it so that you can kind of have a little bit of a sense of the depth of the room. That's actually what they were going to do with Super Mario Brothers 3, was that kind of level design. And then they discovered partway through creating the game that it just did not work. Because one of the things that had always been a hallmark of the Mario series is the precision of your jumping. And I don't mean that you didn't have a lot of wiggle room to change your jump, but if you made a jump and then you kind of manipulated your jump or whatever, you kind of had a good idea of where you were going to land relative to pits and relative to enemies. They could just not get that level of accuracy and precision in this perspective. So Super Mario Brothers 3 ends up taking a long time. It takes over two years to create Super Mario Brothers 3. They start in 1986. Uh, they don't finish it and release it until late 1988. And now our American audience has been like, 1988? No, that's when Super Mario Brothers 2 came out, Alex. What are you talking about? And it's like, yeah, well, things got a bit delayed in the US because we did not get a Super Mario Brothers 2 right away like they did in Japan. Super Mario Brothers came out in 1985, Super Mario Brothers 2 came out in 1986. We were just getting Super Mario Brothers 2 at the same time they were getting Super Mario Brothers 3. And so obviously, you're going to kill the market for two if you go straight to three. Then, on top of that, you had the chip shortage happen which we've talked about in the past, the worldwide ROM chip shortage that played all kinds of havoc with Nintendo's release schedule and for the release schedule of its third parties. So you put these things together and it did not hit the U.S. market until 1990.
0: And of course, by then, they can just have a fantastic ad campaign with its own movie and everything.
1: Right. Of course, they have that tie in with The Wizard you know, since they couldn't do something different with the perspective, I mean, they basically just turned Mario 3 into an everything in the in the kitchen sink kind of Mario game. Let's take Mario gameplay and let's just throw in every last thing we can think of. Tons of levels, tons of environments, tons of enemies. Little quirks. Yeah, tons of power-ups. I mean, I don't know all the details. I mean, this one just unfortunately has not been covered. I couldn't tell you why they decided to have flying or why they decided to do an overworld map or why they decided not to put a save feature in the game. They put it in later. (laughs) A game that big should have a save feature. Nah,
0: you do (laughs) like all of us good kids back in the day did. (laughs) When you were done playing, you left the console on and reverently placed in its spot Went to bed, went to school, got home,
1: and resumed. (laughs) Yeah. So I I can't really say much about other design choices in the game, but obviously it becomes kind of a great, let's put everything we can into it kind of game. Uh, They did deliberately change up the sprite because Tezuka wanted to put his own imprint on it and wanted to make something a little more detailed because the technology was improving. So Mario looks a lot different in that game not as different from Super Mario Brothers 2 but remember that technically Super Mario Brothers 3 was in development before Super Mario Brothers 2 US was in development so and of course it's a massive hit it is the best selling third party video game like ever for years and years i mean it was finally eclipsed but sold something like 13 million copies which for a non bundled game was unheard of and yes i know there was a Super Mario Brothers 3 bundle very briefly a limited bundle but The majority of those $13 were not bundled sales. They were just standalone sales. I mean, that was unheard of for a, I didn't mean third-party title, but for a non-bundled title. Obviously, it's still a first-party title, but unheard of. Super Mario World. Again, there's not much that I can say about Super Mario World. We're going to kind of go through these last few games very quickly. They did deliberately dial back the difficulty on it. Mario 3 is obviously not as hard as... Lost Levels, as Japan, Super Mario Brothers 2, but there was still an idea that this is the third game, and so you've had enough experience with the systems that we can make it harder than the first game. We can put some challenge into the game. Super Mario World, they deliberately dialed back the difficulty because they figured it's a new system, it's a new generation, they're going to get new players again, and you can't just start with the most difficult game ever. The other thing is that they did decide that they wanted exploration to be a key part of it. They wanted to come up with a way of making you have to revisit old levels, which, of course, they did through the, uh, the secret exits. And they figured if they were going to force you to replay a level multiple times to discover everything in the level, that it would be cruel to, at the same time, make the level super hard so that you kind of just barely make it through the level this time, and then, oh, by the way, now that you've gone through that level and died 50 million times and barely made it through, we're going to make you do all that again to get the other exit. Of course, the other famous aspect of it is Yoshi, the introduction of Yoshi. We know a little bit about that. We know Miyamoto had been keen for a while on Mario riding something. Uh, apparently, during the development of Super Mario Bros. 3, this comes uh, from an interview that they did when the SNES Classic was being released. Apparently, during Mario 3, which, remember, again, was this kind of let's throw everything we possibly can in to this game, Miyamoto had suggested, why don't we have Mario ride a horse? And even made a drawing of like Mario riding a horse and was like, let's do something like this. It just didn't work out. Uh, I mean, they couldn't really make that work in the 8-bit game. But the idea of having Mario riding was now kind of there. And so when they got to the next game, Super Mario World, they decided that they would have him ride a creature. But they had already decided that Mario World was going to be in a land of dinosaurs. And again, this is one of these details. I don't know why they decided to do that. But uh, they'd already decided it was going to be a dinosaur land. So rather than a horse, they decided that he should ride some kind of reptilian creature. So, Tezuka tasked an artist named uh, Shigafumi Hino, a new artist. Tezuka did basically all the art on Super Mario Bros. 3 himself. But now we're onto a new system, new generation, bigger teams, yada yada. So, he has this new artist, Shigafumi Hino, draw kind of something kind of reptilian. And the, and the first pass of it is too reptilian. It almost looks like a crocodile. It's, it's not quite in keeping with the Mario aesthetic. So then Tezuka went back and was like, no, this isn't quite right. And then he did a, uh, his own rough sketch of what he felt this dinosaur character could, should look like. And then Hino kind of cleaned that up and you got the, the final design of, of Yoshi. That's as much of the story of Yoshi as we kind of know from available English language sources. Super Mario World 2, I just want to say a couple of things about Super Mario World 2. It started out not as a Mario World 2, it started out as a real side story. And this comes again from the idea that they felt that once again, just like when SRD was making that vertically scrolling uh, Mario-like thing, they, they kind of felt that they had finally truly exhausted what they could do with a two-dimensional side-scrolling Mario run-and-jump game. They figured they knew everything Mario was capable of. They'd put him through all the challenges that they possibly could. And the same artist, Hino, who was now graduating from being an artist to being a director himself, because that's kind of how Nintendo brought people along. Their designers, their game designers, which in Japan are called planners. They would start them as artists, they would hire artists have them do art on a few games, and then push them to then start designing games once they've done art for a while. Kino, the guy who created Yoshi on Super Mario World as an artist, is now being pushed to make his own game. So he's starting to think of something he can do, and he thought it would be a good idea to do a spin-off from Mario and have it star Yoshi because they could come up with new gameplay moves like the the famous flutter jump from Super Mario World 2, that Yoshi could accomplish that it wouldn't make sense for Mario to be able to do those moves. And so that's how he started making Yoshi's Island, which was only given the Super Mario World 2 designation later in the process. The other thing that we know about, and to kind of dispel one of the myths, uh, of course, Yoshi's Island is very much known for its distinctive graphics right that kind of hand-drawn style crayon look different texture
0: really the texture of it is very jarring sometimes especially when you come from the aesthetic of
1: super mario world exactly and that actually came about as a result of donkey kong country which we've of course talked about because yoshi's island was under development when donkey kong country was released and of course Donkey Kong Country took everybody by surprise with its visuals. We've talked about that. I mean, it took Nintendo by surprise with its visuals. Nintendo had no idea you could get those kind of visuals on a Super Famicom or a Super NES. So when that game came out, management was basically like, look at these amazing graphics. This, is, this has raised the bar. You are going to have to do something to keep up with that on this Yoshi's Island game you're making. Now, the story that circulated uh, kind of at the time, or a few years after the time, is that the hand-drawn look was done out of petulance. That Miyamoto and other people on Nintendo didn't like the idea that they had to emulate an art style being done by another company, and so they kind of, in a, as a revolt, went as far in the opposite direction as they could. You know, made something that looked as hand drawn and crude and primitive as they could. Now, that's not to insult the graphics. It's a very striking style. I just mean that Donkey Kong Country was going for something that looked much more realistic, whereas Yossi's Island was going for something that was far more primitive and crayonish in look. The stories were correct that it was a reaction to Donkey Kong Country. But according to Hino, who was actually the guy that made the game in this interview, and sure, it's possible he's just making nice and saying nice things, but I I think it's probably true. It wasn't that they were put off by the style of Donkey Kong Country or incensed that they were being told to make something like Donkey Kong Country. They didn't have time. To do those intricate, realistic visuals and animations that were in Donkey Kong Country this late in development, because they'd already started on it, they just didn't have time. They went for the hand-drawn look because they said, okay, if we don't have time to do this, but we still want to do something distinctive and new, then let's do the complete opposite. That's Yoshi's Island.
0: Not to mention it goes in the theme of the game itself, since you have Baby Mario. And the hand-drawn kid looked there, goes hand-in-hand hand with it.
1: Right. Of course, Baby Mario wasn't part of it at the beginning either. Now, I don't know when Baby Mario was part of it, uh, because again, we don't have as much information, at least in English, on these games. We do know that the idea of Yoshi carrying something with him through the levels was present from the beginning, but it was only later in development that they decided that would be Baby Mario. I don't know if they did that because they decided they were going to call it Super Mario World 2, and it would be weird to have a game called Mario World that didn't have Mario in it or what. But yeah, that's also very true that you you have the child, the baby Mario, and so you have something that looks like a baby drawing baby's first adventure or something. <laughs> so, you know, that that's kind of the 2D era. Obviously, Mario changes a lot when you get into the N64 and the 3D world uh, that defines him today. We we won't go into that in this episode, but I'm sure in a future episode sometime we'll take him into the 3D realm and beyond. But that kind of shows where Mario came from, how Mario evolved, and how Mario became kind of the Nintendo icon and the 2D platforming icon before, of course, eventually making the jump to the 3D and kind of revolutionizing the industry all over again.
0: All right. Pretty much all of the Mario up until the mid-90s. Yes. So I guess that leaves us with the next horrible question I always ask you. What do we delve into next time?
1: Just uh, a week or two ago, or a couple of weeks ago, there was a new book that came out from Blake Harris, who also wrote the uh, historical fiction tome Console Wars that purports to tell the story of the Nintendo-Sega rivalry uh, in the 16-bit era. It does some things very well. It does some things less well. I think we gave a far more nuanced look at what happened during that period in our own epic three-parter of Nintendo versus Sega, but... Uh, You know, that book gained some traction and had some popularity, so he wrote a second book, which just came out a couple of weeks ago, on virtual reality. To hear him tell it, though, in his book, virtual reality was basically this experimental thing that never went anywhere until Palmer Luckey came along and, and did the Oculus Rift. So he, re- he starts his virtual reality story and basically focuses an entire virtual reality story on just the story of Palmer Luckey and the Oculus. Even though VR still has failed to catch on completely, VR has made more inroads today than it has at any other period of time. But to start with Palmer Luckey is to miss a lot of interesting history on how virtual reality kind of started, stopped, crept forward, fell back, over the course of two decades. Even longer than two decades if you count stuff that was just being done in experimental labs that nobody was thinking about using for entertainment. That goes all the way back to like the 60s. In light of this book coming out, I think it would be a good idea to take a look at the development of virtual reality such as it is. All right.
0: Some sort of virtual history next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's forthcoming book will be released through CRC Press. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is tcwpodcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license.